You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of uh, the pastors here. And uh, if you're with us uh, for the first time or, or somewhat new, uh, you come on a season when we are uh, back uh, on Sunday morning and we're back in Central and uh, we're emphasizing, I mean, what you heard uh, Brianna do, man, we're emphasizing, man, we want to be uh, just great um, guests here. Uh, we want to be for the school and for the city. And so we're asking not just to pray really prophetically uh, on Sunday morning uh, that God's spirit uh, would be here, that there would be hope and encouragement, uh, that it would be unexplainable uh, to so many, uh, Lord, that uh, he would work in just great, great ways. We're asking you to pray that throughout the week. Um, and specifically, if God's opened the door here, that we'd pray specifically here uh, for the administration and teachers and students. Um, and then you're also in a season when we are inviting uh, Gary uh, Worsig um, on as an elder. And so we have a picture of Gary and Doreen. Uh, Gary and Doreen have been with us uh, from the very, very beginning from our living room. Uh, they're one of many great leaders, um, and we just kind of feel uh, that the Lord has positioned him uh, to be here at such a time as this. He apologized for sending a picture of um, just them in t-shirts, which I, don't, I think they look great. Um, and there's something you need to know. Uh, Gary and I have a coming uh, pull-up competition that I was feeling pretty good about until Ben, uh, the keyboard player, Ben, he said I was in trouble. Um, and so... Um, I don't, know, I don't know what to do with that. But during this time, we've come to really trust uh, Gary's character, and we believe uh, that he is both called and qualified to step into uh, pastoral eldership um, into Free City. And so he's coming in as, uh, during this time, we're, we're looking at him, we're looking at what the Bible says about eldership in the church. And, uh, you know, during this time, we're asking you to pray for him, um, if you had any concerns, uh, that you would bring that before. And, uh, man, if we feel the Lord's presence still leading uh, here in uh, about three weeks, I uh, mean, we plan, three, four weeks, we plan to um, install him as a lay elder. And that means he's not paid by Free City, um, so he can tell us what he really thinks. Um, and so we're, um, we're, we're asking you to join us in that. Um, and so I actually have good news uh, about eldership. I feel like this week I am finally qualified uh, to be an elder. Finally, it happened. I was at McLean's and I was sitting um, the one, I can't, I can't even park my truck, the one on campus, so I never go there. Uh, so I was at McLean's, the one on Iowa, and uh, I was sitting in a comfy chair and all of a sudden this little like two, maybe three-year-old girl ran up, she had pigtails, and she sits crisscross applesauce right in front of me and she just looks at me like I'm supposed to give her something. And I just kind of look at her and she looks at me and I look back at her. Suddenly I realize we're in a staring competition and I think I'm losing. And all of a sudden her mom comes up just laughing and she says, she thinks you're here for story time, because this is where they sit for story time. And, uh, and so all of a sudden I realized she saw me. She saw my elderness. And she thought I was qualified to read kids' stories to her, but I had nothing to give her. It didn't stop there. 
another little boy ran up and he showed me, I was just sitting there, he showed me his donut. He just ran up and showed it to me, just held it out. I didn't know if he was going to give it to me or not. He did not give it to me. He started eating the donut, frosting side first. Anathema. I mean, what are we doing with youth today, you know? But his mom came up and started laughing too. Similar kind of story, but in the conversation she asked, hey, so do you have kids? And I said, yeah, uh, my wife and I, we have four kids. And she goes, huh, all teenagers. And I go, no. No, not... Our oldest is 12. How old do you think I am? And so um, we finally arrived. No longer am I a younger. I'm an elder. So I can read kids' stories. I can actually, this is true, I can buy dangerous laundry chemicals. I bought Borox for a science experiment for Liv. They had to see my ID for it. I qualified. Um, and I cannot use the word bussin'. My nephew tried to teach me how to use the word bussin'. Doesn't work. Just doesn't work. As we're in this season, and we're inviting uh, Gary to step into eldership, we're looking together at the biblical qualifications of what it means to be an elder. And we're asking you to realize that these are high qualifications that none of us fully are exemplified, none of us fully do, and that we all need to walk in humility with repentance to one another. But they're qualifications nonetheless. And so the Bible carefully describes what an elder should be like, and I have three headings for this, just three main points, and we're going to really kind of walk through, it's kind of a sermon where we walk through and we just point. Look at this, this is another way to say it, but three main headings. So the first one is what an elder is, and then the second one is what an elder must be able to do, and then the third idea is what an elder is like. And so first, what an elder is. And so the idea of a governing elder, it comes not just out of the New Testament. The idea actually finds itself with Israel for a long time. It comes out of its history. And we have lots of examples that we further see in the New Testament, but we have examples that came before. They were different, but they show us something about it. And so the first, like, if you were to look in Exodus 3, 19, or even Exodus 7, you would see um, elders of Israel, elders of the people, and the 70 elders, and these were a group of uh, well-seasoned men who would come alongside Moses, and they would help lead. And so from the very, very beginning, like, the long history is we see that a plurality of leadership is really important. That there's a plurality of ideas and leaders to come to the table to challenge one another, but also to lead in distinction. And so we see that even in the time of Moses. We step forward and we see the idea of elders as uh, the people of God were settling into communities and cities after wandering in the wandering in the wilderness. We see it set up where all the cities and all the communities had elders. People with experience, qualified leaders to help settle disputes, to help settle, you know, what law should govern. How do we interpret the scriptures to let us lead with one another? But we also see it in the time of Jesus. In the time of Jesus, there were elders in the Sanhedrin. And this was a a member, a body of 71 elders that kind of was a uh, quasi-religious and a quasi-political group. But it was common say. Like, it was common to people to think about a plurality 
of elders that would come along and help lead. And so when the New Testament starts to talk about leadership of the church, it wasn't a new idea that no one would have any idea of what to do with this. It would have been familiar, but it goes into great lengths to describe what an elder is. Like there's a consistent pattern in the New Testament describing elders as a plurality of qualified men set up in every local church. We have, you just read through Acts and you'll see all these local churches set up with a plurality of elders. It's also a consistent duty of the elder in the New Testament to oversee doctrine and direction, meaning looking to the scriptures as guidance, the, the, the scriptures that are inspired by the Holy Spirit that are given to us, that came from the teaching of the apostle, that they recorded one another and said, man, the scriptures, this is God breathed. Like coming around to say, I mean, how do we apply the gospel to daily life, to what we do, you know, how, as we go, applying all around that. And so we see that in so many scriptures and a consistent duty to apply doctrine and direction. A plurality of elders are called and qualified. And I, I, I tell you this, like there's different types of church government. Like I actually in my seminary, I, I feel like the statement in the systematic uh, part was, you know, although the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly what church polity should look like, and I actually disagree with that now. I feel like there's a lot of form that's discussed that gives us the idea of elders, it gives the idea of deacons, and what that does is not as much function, but what is consistent in that form is an overseeing an account given to God for doctrine and direction. And actually, I think a plurality of elders is the best way to protect a church from a pastor and to protect a pastor from the church. And so what an elder is, it would have been very familiar for the first century to say, yeah, let's see how we would apply that. And so the first, what an elder is. Second, like we see what an elder must be able to do. And really just two things, like teach doctrine and lead in its direction. And so, you know, we, we like to talk about that as doctrine and direction, but we only really see one skill. And so look down at verse 2. And in verse 2 at the end of it, it says an elder must be able to teach able to teach. That means to know the scriptures, explain the scriptures, defend good doctrine from the scriptures. We get a lot of explanation from this through different places in the Bible. Like, Look at 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. I think it'll be up on the screen for you or you can just listen. It says this, it says, let the elders who rule well, and that, that word kalos, it's the same one that we talked about last week a lot. It means beautifully. Uh, and so it means well put together, let them rule well, so lead and be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so like there's actually like that doesn't just mean an elder needs to be able to like preach, like, like teach one on many, like being able to teach the scriptures means one on many, one on some, one on one. It's just the ability to hold the scriptures and say, man, this is what it teaches. This is what it meant then. This is what it means for all people in all places, like a historical principle. And this is what we do with it now. This is how I think the scriptures lead us in this moment. You know, we, we see this unpack in other places like Titus 1.9 where it says, 
He, meaning an elder, an overseer, a bishop, all exchangeable words for the same position, maybe giving a different distinction for the giftedness of that position, but all talking about the same leadership place. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, that means the scriptures, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That means good, right, well-ordered doctrine. And also rebuke those who contradict it. That means defend it. See, the the ability to teach, it doesn't just mean this. It means like one-on-one, walking beside, one-on-some, in like a you know, like a city group type setting. It just means the ability to take the scriptures and say, man, let's see what this tells us about Jesus. Let's see what this tells us about you. Let's see what it tells us about what God wants to do in your life through how he's gifted you, what he's called you to do. And so we we get one, one ability. (laughs) I mean, like, I want you to look at this. Like, we are gonna look at 13 other characteristics and out of the 14 characteristics, one is a skill, able to teach, understanding the scriptures, able to like communicate it in, in somewhat of a consensus, you know, a concise way. And I know you're like, man, you don't even do that. Sometimes you get on these crazy stories. I'm working at it. But out of 14 characteristics, there is one skill. Everything else is a character trait. A character trait. Like, that should, like, warn us. Like, there's a danger, and we actually see this all the time. When ability outpaces character, it is disaster for the church. And so we see all of these things. You know, it actually, there's a warning, like, you can actually observe someone's ability of knowing the scriptures and able to teach the scriptures in like a long weekend, but it takes time and different kinds of circumstances to observe someone's character, what they're really like. And we all know this. That's why dating is so scary because everyone has like a first good impression and some people are able to hold on to that first good impression and that's why sometimes you just have to like pick a fight like I want to know what they're like or a surprise visit all right back before when when phones were on the wall and they had cords there was a thing called a drop by and it's when you just found yourself in like a friend's neighborhood. You're like, oh, I just want to see what they're doing. And you, you just ring their doorbell and you're like, let me come in and look around. Now, now, now that you have phones in your pockets, it's kind of rude. I mean, you should at least give a heads up of I'm coming and you can't text me again because I'm driving. You know, what? like yeah, at least, you know, and so like, you know, why would you do a, a, a drop by? Maybe an emergency. I mean, maybe it's just rude or maybe it's a pastoral spiritual test. I just need to see what's going on around here. but it takes time. 13 out of 14 characteristics that we're going to walk through all deal with the character of the elder. And so that brings us to our final. Don't get excited. I said final. It doesn't mean like we're almost done. But our final category. What is an elder like? And so let's start in verse 1. It says, this is a trustworthy saying. Or this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of the overseer, and that's also bishop, 
That's also pastor. That's also elder. If anyone aspires, he desires a noble task. And so the word aspire, like it's okay to aspire to leadership. It's okay to have some ambition. It's okay to say, man, I feel like God has placed something in my heart. It's okay to like tell someone about it. And if they just look at you and go, huh, don't be discouraged. Like, I remember when I was going into, into student ministry, like, when I would tell people, like, man, I think God's leading me into student ministry. Like, sometimes the response was like, really? Huh? Do they know about, and I mean, like, they, there would be things there. Uh, this weekend, I get a picture from my sister, and she had a picture, and she, her family was with one of my fraternity brothers from when I was in college. And she was like, do you know this guy? And I'm like, yeah, that's Jake. Why is he with you, you know? And uh, he was taking my nephew to the, uh, to the OU Nebraska football game, and he sends this, and I get a text from my nephew who says, finally, I get to hear some real stories about Uncle Casey. And I just reminded him that, hey, that was before social media, so everything he hears is at best a rumor or hearsay. There is no collaborating evidence for any of it. See, when we look at the character and aspiring, we want you to know, man, it's a noble, beautiful thing. We want you to aspire. The elders have imperfect past. Elders have imperfect presence. Elders are called and qualified, meaning there are things that can disqualify us. And so just with verse 1, it describes it as a noble task. And we, we spend a lot of time talking about it. it's a beautiful calling because the church is a beautiful thing that Jesus poured out his blood for, that he is drawing together, that the gates of hell can't stand against, and that we're participating in something that binds us deeper than anything else. And when other things bind us deeper, we need to look at our lives because the blood of Jesus reached the deepest part of us. You see, the deepest part about you is your sin. Like sometimes we describe the deepest part of us as our suffering, but the deepest part of us is our sin. But the good news is the grace of God runs even deeper. There is hope. The enmeshed part of our lives that has a constant pulling away. God has put us among a body of people who all have similar kind of issues. No temptation sees you, but what's common. We have similar roots. We have similar needs. And he's asked us to come together that we might look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Like look to him over and over and over again. And by what we behold, we will become. What you behold, what you look to over and over, it will slowly change you. And that big mess is called the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. It's called the, the temple of, that God wants to dwell in, a special manifestation of us. It's a beautiful, beautiful calling. Listen to this quote. It says this, uh, pastoral ministry involves forms of suffering, discouragement, and heartbreak for which no school can prepare a man, but ministry also holds happy surprises. No one in seminary told me that I would fall in love with my congregation or that I would have a front row seat to watch God's faithfulness and the gospel's power at work in people's lives. 
Isn't that beautiful? Kenzie and I were on, on a date about a month ago, and uh, we were just talking, and she asked this question. She's like, hey, if you would have known the last year would be like it was like 20 years ago, would you have gone into a different field? And I thought, man, that feels like a trick question. And I wouldn't. I mean, there, there are moments where it's like, hey, breathe deep. There are moments of uncertainty. There are moments of heartbreak. And there are moments of all that. There are also joyful moments when you see the striving power of the gospel in someone's life. When you see addictions beat and reconciliation happen. When you get to see the mystery of the gospel unfolding in people's lives. And when you get to apply the same grace that you ask from Jesus and from others to other people, knowing that change happens slowly and there is usually two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes the floor drops out like the floor is lava and you just got to like swim to the edge and start all over. All of that held in the economy of the beautiful, beautiful church. Verse 2 goes on. It says this, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, I feel like it would be best, most helpful if there was a colon right there because above reproach, if we want to know what that means, it means everything that follows. Like there's a description of all of these things. And so the first one, it says, the husband of one wife. Like there's only three words there. It literally means one woman man. Like those are the three words, one woman, man. And there's a lot of like, you know, you know, what does that mean? There's a lot of controversy about what that means. And so some people say, you know, this is a time when polygamy was rampant. And so it means you can't be polygamous. I certainly think that's true. You know, but it also like knowing that this was written by, by Paul, who the Apostle Paul, a single man, like he's like the elderest elder that ever eldered, and he was a single man. It doesn't mean that you have to be married. It's saying something about if you are married, there's something about your relationship with your wife that everyone looks at and is like, yeah, man, he's got one woman in his life. And so I think that opens up, like I think it's possible to be called as an elder and have a divorce in the background, but like there would be like, we would have to look at the reasons for the divorce. We'd have to look at the time of reconciliation, the time of repentance, and the genuine health in someone's life that everyone looks around and says, man, there's no doubt. I look at that relationship and there is no doubt that he loves his wife. There is no doubt that he serves his wife. There is no doubt that he is faithful to his wife. There is no doubt that his wife likes him. Likes him. Likes to tell other people in social settings, no, I like him. Like that's important. There's something about that relationship that's a testable community in both cases, married or single, this phrase could be understand to mean that there is a high accountability for his sexuality. A high, more than that. There is a high ask for accountability in the area of relationships and, and sexuality. An elder must be above her approach if married, known as a one woman man. Uh, the second thing, look, look at verse 2 still. We get, we get a series of things where it says sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. And the good news is we've already covered the able to teach. So we only have these. And so first, sober-minded. It's also translated as temperate 
or vigilant, depending on the translation, but it carries the idea of being watchful on oneself and one's interpretations of others and circumstances and actions. It means there's nothing else controlling the inner life, like there's a soberness. He's not controlled by excessive passion, lust, or emotion. He doesn't have a short fuse. He's not consumed with bitterness or distrust or his image. There's nothing apparent in control of his thoughts, actions, or interpretation. In the same way that when someone gives themselves to drunkenness, there's something else kind of above them. Like there's a constant fight in the elder's life to say, slow down. In that situation, what would be the best possible like reason for why that conversation is coming? In that dialogue, what would be the best possible intent in someone else's heart? In these circumstances, what might God be doing even though I hate it right now? There's a sobriety, which then gives us to self-controlled, which is very closely related. It's the ability to stop take inventory on what's going on in and around and then respond rightly. You know, everyone messes up on these things. But it would be looking at a leader and say, man, there's a safety around them. There's a self like inflection, like a doubt of like, maybe I'm wrong on this interpretation. Maybe I need to hear more. There's a curiousness of like, when, when, when that happened, when that was upsetting, what was going on? We see a sober-mindedness. We see a self-control. And then we see respectable. And that, that means like a well-ordered or, or beautifully put together, you know, general life. And it, it, it's obvious, like, this is always a scary thing to talk about. Like, to talk about like, Let's talk about what I'm supposed to be and what I'm not always. And you could probably find evidence for why I'm not this or where I'm falling short in this. Like, I would like to give this to anybody else to teach except me. I mean, there are moments that we blow this, especially when you know the original word here. The original word for respectable is cosmos. It's used to describe the beautiful order of this world and universe, how things work together. Like, we could sing the circle of life. You know, it's talking about something that has divine order, and you're like, good Lord, that's a lot. It's talking about an observable balance to an elder's life, a certain beauty about the way that he interacts in all areas. These are high character traits. And then the last one in this section is hospitable and able to teach. But we already covered that. Hospitable means an open and shared life. Hospitable. It, it, it means like, like there's a willingness to let people in just to observe and just to be a part. Like it's a willingness to share family, home, food, time, to clean for all of that stuff to happen. Like change doesn't just happen because you get good information. Listen, information is an important part of transformation, but it doesn't change. Like, Jesus didn't just show up to the disciples and say, hey, listen, you guys need to nail this stuff, and now I'm going to come back. When you take the test, we're good to go. He walked with them for three years, three years with Jesus all the time. 
Three years for Jesus to say, whoa, 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 observe how I do that. Whoa, observe how it should be. Whoa, whoa, you should not do that, Peter. We should not call down fire from heaven to kill the Samaritans. It's wrong. Like, observe. This hospitality, you know, I, I feel we've got a bunch of neighborhood kids, and I kind of feel like we have like an unofficial, unpaying um, after-school program. And uh, I've got to clean up after them. Uh, they want to bake stuff. And they're getting better. So that's getting better. Um, but literally, they, I, sometimes you go in and, you know, I see they, what they've done and that they're baking something. And I just picture, you know, I mean, it's just that moment of did they take the flour and just like, you know, I mean, is this basket? Is this the NBA? Like, How? How did this happen? I need answers. I feel like I might need an exorcist to clean this up. How did this happen? But here's the deal. They come in and they eat all my granola bars, all of them. (laughs) And they make messes. But they're created in the image of God. I want them to be curious about us. I want them to be curious about Jesus. I want them to ask questions. I want them to observe. They're going to see me in good moments and bad moments. But I hope they observe a deep love and surrender that sometimes I have to look at my kids and I have to apologize to them. First Peter 4.8, it says this. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sin. Fine, you can have another granola bar. Showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. Gosh, that's awful. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, his multifaceted grace, his grace that has a place for every sin and every suffering. There's a shade of God's grace that matches exactly what you're going through. And that's not just a teaching thing. It's an observable thing. And that's why hospitality that can look different in different seasons of life but there's an openness the incarnation of jesus himself incarnation carne that means meat chili con carne is better than chili no con carne god put on flesh and dwelt among us do you know how change happens It happens when you are surrounded by people who have a little bit more health than you. And through patience and discipline, they walk with you. And over time, that like dysfunction starts to get leached out of you. As you walk with Jesus in this world, he put on flesh to be among us. His perfect humanity that was on display before us. And now the Holy Spirit at work in your life and among the church, among other people is leeching your dysfunction out of you. It's leeching my dysfunction out of me. It takes time. It's not just information. And that's why hospitality is say, come and take a look. Verse three. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. You know, if verse two said, hey, you have to have these qualities about these characteristics about you to be qualified. Verse three is saying you have to not have these qualities or you're disqualified. 
And so real fast, not a drunkard. It means that an elder cannot be controlled by any other substance. Like there can't be a giving to his life. This is not saying like a teetotaler stance. God leads some people to that. But there can't be something that has a strong grip upon his life. Like you can't just like smoke to cope. I mean, you can't look to something to say, man, all the world is upon me and I don't know what else to do. I won't go to Jesus. I'll go to this. There's all kinds of addictions that grip us that we run to. Some are just more accepted than others, like coffee. And I mean, whoa, be careful, I know. Not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. How do you feel about a violent husband? How do you feel about a violent dad? How do you feel about someone with power raging and, and using it over people to get what they want, leveraging that? How do you feel about that? Not violent, but gentle. And like, that doesn't mean like malleable and never taking a stance. Like, man, this is, what, this is the prayer I pray for men all the time. Like, I pray, God, would you turn us into a, a, a people who are, have noticeable, like, like a strength, but a, a, a gentleness. Like, when we talked about, like, the, the truth, like, able to teach. Listen, like, there's a lot that goes into that. Like, it's not just sharing what's true. There's a tone that Jesus carries. There's a tone that you have to perceive about people to say, this is what the Word of God says. This is what we're supposed to do. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know there's been abuses and hurts. There's a tone. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. And that means not looking for a fight. And, and, and Paul has told us about this elsewhere in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Li just listen to this. He's talking to Timothy, who's going to instruct the churches on, on how to... And he's tell, he says, listen, Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, we see it again, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. See, you can be an incredible teacher and you can be absolutely true, but the manner in which you do it, if you're quarrelsome looking for a fight like I can't wait to like Bible slam somebody it disqualifies you listen, listen to this quote uh, from Tabidi it says this he, he wrote a book on elders and deacons it's beautiful he says this far from being quarrelsome the pastor avoids arguments patiently instructs and recognizes disputes in the church as symptoms of a deeper spiritual desire James 4 verses 1 through 3 like supposed to look at like there's a sin underneath the sin there's something else driving something that makes this look plausible something that makes this hurt or scared like this is hard it's also looking inside yourself of like, man, why did that hurt me so much? Why did that make me so mad? Like there's something inside of me. It goes on. 
patience, gentleness, and teaching are the rule of the day. Teaching must not be confused with lampooning every person who has a different opinion. How often have pastors found themselves enmeshed in controversy over wild and silly ideas. The church needs to be, the church needs men who are able to see through such demonic ploys and give the people a model of soberness and peace. Not a drunkard, not violent, not someone looking for a fight. And then verse three goes on to say, not a lover of money. You know, this phrase, not a lover of money, it's only used a couple times in the New Testament. And uh, the King James, this just sounds so cool. It it calls it not greedy for filthy liqueur. You know, that means gain. I mean, that's like a rap song, you know. Not greedy uh, for filthy liqueur. It means that the bottom line cannot be the bottom line. Financial gain cannot drive decisions, but righteousness in the glory of Jesus and the good of others through sacrificial leadership and accountability, these ideas make up the bottom line. It means there has to be a healthy fight against greed and pull and possessions. Verse 4. It says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Like, like that, that term, manage his home well, that does not mean perfect. Like, write that down, all right? That does not mean perfect. That does not mean always nailing it. That doesn't mean always knowing what to do. It doesn't mean always exhuming perfect patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. It means that there must be a spirit about it. And it means that there must be a repentance in, in the nature that when it doesn't go well, when you make the wrong call, When it comes off wrong or when that teenager inside of you just kind of steps up or that that defense attorney in your heart steps up and says, I object, you know, when all of those things happen, that there is a spirit that you can come before and say, man, I blew it and I'm sorry and I need your forgiveness. You know, the biggest thing, because once again, like if Paul is like the elderest elder that ever eldered, and he was a single, qualified man. You know, when this is pointing, it's just pointing to testable community. It, it, it's telling us that there's a danger with like the first impressions and that we can fake something in a lot of places, but it's hard to fake it with the people you live with. Like they actually know your character, the people that you step on or, or brush by and have to ask for forgiveness, like the people who hurt your feelings and you have to confront in gentleness, like all of those things. Like it's saying there needs to be a testable community that says when no one else is looking, when no one else is around, like what does that look like? In verse 4, when it says he must manage his house, but then in verse 5, it says that he must care for the church. That word, care for the church, it's the same word used in in Luke 10 about the good Samaritan who risked himself for a victimized traveler who was in need. Think, Think about what happened in that. He slowed his life and plans down. 
He set them aside for something more urgent. He carried the man to a safe place. And then he sacrificially supported that man in a safe community that can meet his needs. And he continued to support until he was better. He said, I know it's going to cost. If I owe you more money when I get back, I'll pay it. Like that care for God's church is describing something about a sacrificial nature. And obviously, everybody fails from time to time. Every parent has a bad day. Every roommate deserves to be voted off the island at some point. Every pastor, elder, will have to apologize to their friends and to their people. Like, you need to know this. I can't, I can't actually make out any faces because, like, I'm, like, blinded here, but... So if it looks like I'm looking at you, I, I really can't see you. <laughs> there are people sitting with you that I have had to apologize to, that I've had to seek their forgiveness. It doesn't mean perfect, but is there an observable care among the closest community in their lives that you think, man, I hope that gets demonstrated to the church also and passed along there also. Another book uh, by Jeremy Ryan, he says this. Gentle elders exercise their authority with the tenderness of a shepherd and the sensitivity of a loving father. Verse 6. He says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This just means somewhat seasoned and humble. Not a recent convert, not puffed up with conceit. You know, another way that we could say that is an elder who does not have a certain amount of maturity and humility is in demonic danger. Mature and humble, maturity and humility are traits that take time to see, take time to develop. It's not just information. And then verse 7, it says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so this speaks to a general reputation, not just inside the church, but outside of the church, to be thought of well by outsiders. That means that like when you are in the coffee shop and you introduce like your pastor to, to someone, hey, this is my pastor, or you're telling someone about, hey, my pastor, they shouldn't be like, what? That guy? Are you serious? Like that shouldn't be the response. Now listen, the gospel offends. But it's like, is there added excess offending that's going on? And, like, listen, we got a dog, Charlie. Charlie's four years old now. Charlie's a good dog now. For the first two years of Charlie's life, I saved his life. There were moments when I would come home and like Kinsey was home and she's like, hey, I'm done with that dog. And I'd be like, okay. And it was slowly like, I think the kids love the dog, but I choose you. You know, I, I, you know if we rehome him, uh, the kids aren't going to understand it. But if we murder him, we can just say he died. I don't think they'll ever actually ask me, did you murder our dog? And so I was like, it's the safest thing. I choose you. I choose you. Charlie is loud and vocal. Charlie, you know, used to walk. Like, he would get up and walk on the banister of our deck 
that is like 15 feet above the ground. He would get up and just kind of stand on it and kind of look around and then just bark. I mean, he's like, hey, 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 hey. I mean, just over and over. And our neighbors did not appreciate it. And the cops that they called did not appreciate it. And so I had to go around and apologize to my neighbors and confer them like, listen, I'm going to put a bark collar on him. And I'm, one is like, you think it'll work? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. A bark collar will work. I still, The first time I put it on him, you know, he starts barking, you know, hey, hey, hey. And it, it kind of beeps and warns you, then it vibrates. And then it lets, I mean, it's <laughs> Charlie, he's like, roof, roof, roof. And then he looks up at heaven. I'm like, that's right. That was God. <laughs> you know, I, there were times where, like, my neighbor's probably like, man, I, I hate that. I hate that preacher and his dog. And I said, I promise we're going to work hard. We want to be good neighbors. We want you to want to sing it outside. And so we got a $15 bark collar. And man, the mercies of the Lord ever give. And it worked. And now we don't even have to do it anymore. Like every once in a while, we can, I mean, we can just fake it, you know. You know, we have a training collar too. You know, I just kind of hold my hand up like this. And Charlie's like, oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> There's always... There's always going to be, no one's perfect. But there shouldn't be this like response of like, man, when I think about what this says an elder's supposed to be, there shouldn't be this like, are you serious, that guy? If it wasn't for the changing power of the gospel, there would be no one qualified to lead. I was talking to him, a, a mentor, and uh, I just said, man, you talk about the nature of the church, it just seems really risky that God entrusts really imperfect people who are dealing with selfishness and all other kinds of sins. You know, they're trying to balance all that. God would entrust that with his bride. It seems crazy to me. And he just looked at me with, with just this simple expression. He says, what other choice does he have? Without the changing power of the gospel, there would be no one qualified to lead. And it's only through regular repentance and surrender to the authority of the scriptures that any pastor or elder could ever lead. Like the changing power of the gospel. Do you know that? It's not just information and good doctrine and reading the right books. Like, have you stood before the scriptures and just said, man, I, like, this is not about a sin out there that I see other people. This is about me. I need help. The changing power that Jesus graciously gives and promises to deliver and he sits with us and leeches out our dysfunction and provides grace and tenderness and sometimes strong rebuke. Jesus is the head of church, of the church and he asks some, he asks some to step up and just try to lead and to offer repentance and all of those different things. But he asked all of us to come into a partnership into the bride of Christ, into the body of Christ, into the temple of God where the special manifestation of the Holy Spirit lives among us and communes between us. 
Paul, in other places, in Philippians, he calls it a gospel partnership that we come together and we say there's a new kingdom coming and we get to be a part of it now. This is the local church. And we're in a season that it's not just applying the gospel to our hearts, it's applying the gospel to everyone around and saying, but in the light of the gospel, in the light of all the imperfection, how is God leading us right now? You know, when we come together on Sunday morning, there's a term out there that some, uh, some people use called like a seeker, uh, like a seeker church. And uh, we, we, you know, we want to do things well, but we actually probably frame this a little bit more like this. Man, if you're here and you're kind of kicking the tires on Jesus, you're trying to figure out what is this Jesus all about? Why do people come and worship Jesus and sing songs about Jesus and look to Jesus? Why do they do that? Like, I want you to know what you walked into. You walked into a family meeting where we are looking to Jesus for guidance. And we are so glad you're here. And now we end the service with a family meal. And the family meal is really an expression, not just what's here. It is local, but it's also an expression of all of God's people in all places. And so if you look to Jesus, if you trust and treasure Jesus, we ask you to enjoin us in this family meal because it, the family meal has Jesus at the head of the table and he's provided seats for all who love him, for all who look to him, for all who inconsistently try to follow him, for all who look at the gospel and say, Jesus is my only hope. It's a family meal. And it reminds us of how we got into the family. And so the way we take communion is we start on the bread side and it'll be torn off for you. And then it will go, it'll be dipped into the wine and it'll be handed to you and there'll be a proclamation spoken over you that this is the body and the blood of Jesus for you. And so this is one option for communion. We have another option, which are individual packets, which have grape juice and gluten-free bread, and they're back at the information table, and so you can grab that. But this is nothing more than a reminder that we are family under one saving thing, one saving person, the person of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, oh gosh, looking at the characteristics that should be growing. Lord, it's both daunting and hopeful. Lord, I pray your kingdom come, your will be done. I pray that it will reflect something about heaven and not just earth. I pray that there will be a palatable presence that's right here in this place that resides in the hallways even after we leave, that it would turn hearts to Jesus. There would be a common grace that all would experience and there would be a wonder about who you are and what you do and why you love us, why you love the church. Why am I invited so, Lord, we ask for help. And, Lord, we ask to carry all of that wonder, all of that confusion as we come to communion, whether it's up front or in the back. And, Lord, if there is something in our heart whispering, go apologize first. Or be still, Lord, that we would listen and we would trust. And after whatever you've laid upon our hearts, after we followed in obedience there, after whatever that is, we would come back next week. 
and celebrate, that there is time and time again to come to the table of God. Lord, it's only through the power of the gospel, the good news that you came to dwell among us, that you put on flesh, that your presence slowly leaches out all the dysfunction and all the doubt and all the fear that we don't have to make fear and doubt our God anymore because we have a Savior God. Lord, save us. In Jesus' name, amen.